Hello and welcome to day nine of the Wigtown Book Festival. I'm your host of this podcast, Peggy Hughes. On today's episode, we're teaming up with our sister book town, Featherston, to celebrate all things New Zealand. Featherston became a full member of the International Organisation of Book Towns two years ago in 2018. And so we're dedicating this episode to people who are living in New Zealand. We talked to our Scottish correspondent in Dunedin, the academic and crime writer Liam McIlvenny, as well as the former Poet Laureate of New Zealand, Selina Tusitale Marsh. We were also delighted to talk to two of the people behind the Featherston Booktown project, Mary and Peter Biggs. But we start this episode with Selina Tusitale Marsh, a poet and academic who was the New Zealand Poet Laureate from 2017 to 2019. Her collection Tightrope was long listed for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards and her book Mophead was the supreme winner at the New Zealand Book Awards for children and young adults in August. Selena, hello. Talo falava. So I just wanted to, to kick things off really by saying this this episode we're looking at book towns and celebrating that very special network of book towns across the world and I'm aware that if the world had not misbehaved this year that you would have been in Featherston. Can you tell us a bit about what, what had been planned there? As I recall, lots of weird and wonderful things including um, a gathering at a fish and chip takeaway shop where I would have um, spoken and eaten fish and chips with some people. Some kind of conversation with people Peter Biggs about my work and currently what I'm doing. It has been really disappointing to have festival after festival cancel and then try and resuscitate something of the moment through Zooming or online podcasts and and stuff. Nothing ever replaces being in situ and getting a sense of the vibe of the local community. And Featherston is, you know, in the Waiwarapa, it's a it's a rural town. It's got its own distinct flavour. It's tiny but with the biggest heart and it would have been um, my pleasure to be able to visit there as a poet and as a writer. I hope that you will get there next year maybe because that sounds absolutely lovely. Oh yeah and it's been very much the heart project of you know Mary and Peter Biggs. They have a lemon orchard in Featherston and I've been um, their guest at various times in their little apartment that they've got facing the lemon orchard and it's been a marvellous place to write and run and just for me to catch my breath away from the big smoke. Selena, I want to ask you a little bit about how poetry found you really. I mean I've got lots of questions about you and your time as the Poet Laureate but but first of all just if you could tell us when did poetry first reach you? Mm, Well I've just published a graphic mini memoir where I wrote the story and I drew the pictures and really that begins when I was 11 in intermediate school and we had our first visiting poet and he's colloquially known as the Bard of New Zealand. His name is Sam Hunt and he's tall and slim and white male but I just remember his wild hair and I have wild hair, you know, crazy, curly, frizzy hair because I'm of um, Samoan, Tuvaluan, English, Scottish and French descent. And so, you know, that goes into making some pretty wild hair. And I related to Sam initially with his difference his physical difference and then he performed his poetry memorized not just his own poems but the global volume of poems and I just wondered if I could do that because he just in the book I refer to him as the Pied Piper he just carried us kids away with his language and his 
embodied way of being in the world. You know, well, that's when I asked, could I do that? And so he sowed the seeds when I was 11. And then the following year, there was a local Christian magazine that were, you know, had a call out for poems. And I just thought, why not? So I submitted a poem on nuclear French nuclear testing in the Pacific in Mururoa and talked about the mushroom cloud and they published it and I'd quite forgotten about it and a month later someone in my little town came up to me and said hey I love that poem and the epiphany that I had was that something that had been swirling around in my head once it was published it no longer became mine it became something else that other people could relate to that could lift up people that could get them questioning and inform them. And that was a quite amazing experience of the power of the published word, you know, not just the poems scribbled in and popped under my mattress, but, you know, words that had a public platform for sharing. It's one of the, the most remarkable and exciting things about, about a poem, isn't it? That it's almost a collaboration with whoever finds it and encounters it on their terms. It feels like it could travel in a million different directions with all the different people. Absolutely. You're, you're in the business of making meaning together. The fact that words are worlds and that even in that minute change of a letter, the letter L, right? You put it in, it's world, you take it out, it's word. It's like the magic that language offers you when you play with it and, you know, it becomes malleable with your ideas and it bends to tell the story that you want to tell. And also you receive back something quite unexpected as well, if you're open to it. Do you, do you think that poetry is doing the best it can for children? I think sometimes in, in education settings, poetry can seem really inaccessible especially for, for younger people. Do you think we're doing it right? I don't think we're doing it right, actually. You know, I've got three children. They've gone through the education system. They're boys. They're especially difficult to reach in terms of being part of the demographic that read the least. And year after year, they bring back poems set in exams that are uh, based on World War One dead white male poets. And I'm like, really? There's, you know, so much more out there now, so much more out there to hook you and possibly reflect your own reality, not excluding their own mother's poetry, right? <laughs> I, you know, my boys went to a all boys grammar school and I offered repeatedly whilst being the New Zealand Poet Laureate to come in and speak and they were just not interested. And I think it was the combination of having not just a woman poet, but a brown woman poet occupy that space that would have been so much, so different, so alien that there was an inability to connect. And it was hugely ironic because I'm a poet that's demanded in schools from tip to tail of Aotearoa, New Zealand. So for the largest state school in my own backyard to not show any interest told quite a different story from what the curricular guidelines say recommended from the government would have people think. So that's another story in itself. <laughs> like that's a whole sequence of poems that I'm writing. Yeah, that's wild. What a, their loss, honestly, terrible. Um, but I'm, I'm glad, you, obviously I, I wanted to ask you about being Poet Laureate and just the idea that laureates often, and this is something that 
I'm aware in a in a piece that um, Professor Helen Sword said, but you know they are often seen as kind of um, poets of the past, and they're chosen for a, a big old you know list of accomplishments. But you you were an appointment that was just stood out, were so present and so alive to the present. Can can you say a bit about that role and what it meant for you and what what you wanted to achieve within it? We've had a poet laureateship since 1996, and the tenure is for two years. And I was the eleventh poet laureate. The fifth woman, and at 47 at the time, the second youngest. I was the first Pacifica poet laureate, or the first person of Pacific Island descent to occupy the role. You know, the three poets laureate before me were all in their late 70s, early 80s. They were all white, they were all male, and all part of the literary establishment, too, were you know, former university professors and one was the public intellectual. And, you know, so it was like I walked into that space and I spoke to someone from the National Library who I respect greatly and I just said to him, I don't know if I can do this. And he said, you just be you because that's why you were chosen. We need something of this moment of that that truly reflects the multiplicity of our cultures in this nation. And actually, people are a bit tired of the same old, same old. So he knew, because I said to him, I'm going to take the Poets Laureate story out there to the people. And I did, you know, and in my, you know, I put together this mammoth poem at the end of my two-year tenure. I put it to a PowerPoint kind of slideshow, which showed like two images. And I'd taken the toko toko or the carved Māori walking stick that each incoming laureate receives and is made for them by Jacob Scott, a Māori carver. You know, I'd taken that toko toko and the story to 12 countries around the world to over 40 towns, cities, villages. And people were just really hungry to be able to hear the toko toko story, touch the toko toko, know that it wasn't this pristine object that, you know, is usually behind a glass case in the National Library or in a museum, but it was out there and they were part of the story. Their experience with poetry was interwoven into the genealogy of that material object. And it was so much fun. And I worried a little bit that I wasn't keeping up the, you know, the laureates usually keep a a blog. My predecessor had published regularly these quite intellectual, long pieces about the state of poetry in our nation. And, you know, he's one of our leading critics and one of our leading poets and authors. And I just did not have time to maintain that. I realized that that's because I wanted to reach more than a, a dozen people, that I was reaching entire school communities, you know, community groups, church groups, athletic groups, you know, you name it. You know, I tried to go there and tell them about their own. This is an award that belongs to them. It's funded by the taxpayer. So that was my level of responsibility and accountability to those who enabled this award to happen. I've read in an interview, you talked about the taking poetry to unpoeted places, which I really both both like the idea of and admire, you know, that sense that, that your work is in the world. Mm. My first mountain marathon that I went on, I took the toko toko, which is, you know, just over six foot carved wood. And the carver had made it so I could disassemble it in 11 pieces and pop it in my backpack because he knew I'd travel with it. 
But on this mountain marathon, I had my team around me, my fellow trail tribers. I live on a little island, 35 minutes um, boat ride from downtown Auckland. And we took turns carrying this beautiful, you know, material poem through the mountains. And what happened was that other fellow runners who had come from all over the world to run this course were curious, they wanted to help carry it, they asked what it was, my my fellow tribe members would tell the story because I got, you know, tired of talking and running at the same time. And it was really, you know, taking poetry to those unpoeted spaces and places where people just don't expect that to be and really freeing people of the notion that poetry is ju- just belongs in certain literary spaces that they might not have access to. Of course, it's not all, there are challenges, I suppose, with being a poet laureate. And I wonder if you would speak about that sense of writing to commission and when you want to say things that the others might not want to hear, I guess. I'm thinking of when you wrote a piece for the Queen and a whole you know, cast of royalty and so on. Could you say a little bit more about that challenge? <laughs> yes, that's right. So my second graphic memoir book is called, well, the first one's called Mophead, which was a name I was teased with at when I was younger and um, I've turned it into my superpower, my crowning glory. The second book is called Mophead, The Queen's Poem. And I talk about the five rules that the palace had set for the composition of this commissioned piece. And in the book, I talk about how poetry enables you to both keep the rules and break the rules at the same time. It was a really interesting experience in terms of being censored, but also being clever about your words so that your message still gets through. And what I really wanted that commission poem to do, because I had a global platform for three and a half minutes, was to raise awareness about global climate change and the disappearing island of my ancestors, you know, my grandfather's island of Tuvalu. I believe that I did that through that poem and and a whole lot more. In the book, the challenge that Mophead has to overcome, even before encountering those five rules that the Queen set <laughs> or that the Commonwealth had set, came from my own colleagues, my own Pacific Island colleague, who had on the announcement of me being made Commonwealth Poet for 2016 had whispered rather loudly in the faculty meeting that I was a sellout. You know, so here I was, former, you know, coming from a former colonised nation, New Zealand, Samoa, Tuvalu, and here I was performing at the heart of the former British Empire. I was devastated. I was like, you know, are you kidding me? And my Māori colleague sitting right next to me said, you know, in an equally loud voice, someone's just jealous. She said, you know, who's actually suckling at the teat of the British Empire? You who performs a poem for three and a half minutes or that guy who was the recipient of a Rhodes Scholarship for six years at Oxford? You know, it's like, it just, you know, what's difficult is is that sometimes you feel like you get attacked from all sides so you have to know what you stand for you know otherwise as the as the common saying says you'll fall for anything how did the poem land in the room that evening well you know in mophead the first book it's a memoir so the conversation i have with the queen is actually represented there and she had you know one of the things she'd said was how did you manage to memorize that long poem because i um i decided to do without the paper 
when I realized there was no podium, everything was kind of miked in the air. And I replied to her, it's my job, your majesty, I'm a poet. And she replied, yes, I suppose it is. Well done. And that was really special because I, I think given her exhausting schedule and the fact that she, you know, needs to, you know, feels the need to respond personally to those people that she talks to, to come up with something, you know, unique and different every single time is quite a feat. So I did feel that she was genuinely interested in and involved. The Duke of Edinburgh, however, I don't even think he was present even though he was physically present but it felt like it landed really well and I got so much feedback because BBC aired it live and and people were able to download it from other places in the world. I'm glad that you've you've mentioned Montpere and huge congrats because I'm aware that it's it's just last month I think won a huge award which is it must be so exciting. Can can you say a little bit Selena about writing for that age group? How it's different? Why you wanted to? You mean seven to seventy year olds? Um, oh yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and I talked to one of our leading children's authors while I was writing Montpere and I I said to her because she said who's your reader. And I went, oh, just everyone. And she goes, well, that's rookie mistake number one. You know, she says, I write for the precocious, curious 12-year-old. And you must have a firm audio readership in mind so that your tone is consistent, your subject matter is relevant. And um, I tried to, but I just couldn't. I couldn't. You know, I wanted adults to get as much pleasure out of Mophead as the seven-year-old. When I'd finished Mophead, I'd come across, I was given Charlie McKeezy's book, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. And I'm like, well, there you go, right? There you go. That's how, and he writes for seven to 70 year olds, you know, the sublime simplicity of the line, you know, that, and my friend had given it to me because, you know, she said, he's another author who draws his own pictures as well as writes the story. You know, it really is my second Bible. I just, I love that book. I hadn't heard of it before I started Mophead, but now I'm into book three. It is absolutely that balance that I want to bring. And Mophead one started out with me wanting to get, again, the Poet Laureate story out there to the widest possible readership, which means it has to be, you know, read by primary schoolers. We've got to plant the seeds early so that kids can dream that one day they too might be a poet laureate. I didn't even know we had a poet laureate until I got to university. And even then it wasn't until I was, you know, a lecturer in the department. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, just trying to kind of take away the elite sheen of it. I've just got a couple of small little final questions, Selena, just about the craft of it all itself, I suppose, just in where a poem actually begins for you. How do you, it's, I say it's a small question and then I say, oh, where, where do you get your poems from? Um, but I just mean, where, where does, what's the starting point? So I think that the starting point has to begin for me with just paying attention to my life and paying attention to the way I see things. And often I'll see and receive things a little bit differently than the people around me. And that's kind of my gut saying, oh, oh, capture this. This is something that a poem can catch, you know, because it's always that juxtaposition between how a thing is seen or experienced or felt in the world and how I might be seeing it or experiencing it differently. And a poem helps legitimize my feelings about something to myself. So when, for example, 
you know, Mophead started out as a poem and then it called itself to be much bigger. Not only did it call itself to be a, a story, but it also called for me to do my own drawings because they were, it was such an integral part of the message, which is basically, if I can do it, if a young brown working class girl can do all these things, then you can too. And I was just blessed enough to have a publisher who agreed with me, even though they had said, look, we're a publisher, we can contract out this to a professional children's illustrator. And I went, yeah, nah, that's going to work against my message of this being your complete authentic self. And so it's that rub against what people usually think to how I want to do it that often provides the flint for a poem to begin. And it'll often be one line that someone said to me or something that I think or just it just starts off with that moment of tension or that moment of struggle or you know the obs observing something a little bit different it's a mary oliver to pay attention this is our endless and proper work my final question then is just who are the poets laureate of your own inner life oh so alice walker has to be up there in the list her poem, Be Nobody's Darling, Be an Outcast, Take the Contradictions of Your Life and Wrap Around You as a Shawl to Parry the Stones to Keep You Warm. You know, there are certain lines that have stayed with me right from the beginning. As soon as I've read them, they've continued to feed me and guide me and be that warm, quiet well of wisdom in me. And Alice Walker and Maya Angelou, you know, simply the line, a bird doesn't sing because it has the answer. A bird sings because it has a song. They feed me creatively. They feed me critically. I have Maya Angelou's line um, taped to my office door at university. And students often ask me about it because it's like, well, aren't we here to get it right? And I'm like, well, you might be here, but I'm here to help you find your song. Gosh, how wonderful to have Selena Tusitala Marsh help you find your song. Many, many thanks to her for chatting to us and for giving up a Friday evening so that we could chat with her. Selena was talking about Featherstone Booktown and her thwarted plans to be there this year. The Featherstone Booktown project was the brainchild of husband and wife Peter and Mary Biggs, along with other members of their community, and it has flourished from its early beginnings to something really quite remarkable. We talked to both Mary and Peter about Featherstone and how the Booktown came into being. Mary, can we come to you first? Could you tell us what is Featherston like? So Featherston is a small rural town. It's uh, got a population just over 2,000 people. We are 50 minutes by car from Wellington, the major city closest to us, which is the capital city. The great thing about Featherston is its community. We've been living here for 23 years. When we first arrived, we had small children and the stunning thing for me as a mother at home with four small kids was that every event that I could take the children to after school was run by volunteers. So that's things like the swimming club and the athletics club. It's a very, very strong community of people that want Featherston to do well. And 
Peter, what what was it that first made you aware of the of the book town and, and perhaps Featherstone's you know suitability or or the idea that Featherstone too could be a book town? What what first started that story? Where it began was was actually a, a Wigton connection because Lincoln Gould, who is our neighbour, um, he and I got talking over the fence, and he said, "My daughter Rosie said that there's a book town in Scotland called Wigton, and she's looked up the whole book town." network and we think there's an opportunity in Featherston to be New Zealand's book town. And we began on a wing and a prayer. We all did it voluntarily right at the start. So we started thinking about this about 2014 and we had our first festival in 2015. It was reasonably successful and it's had exponential growth since then. And it's been wonderful, as Mary has said, not just in terms of distinctiveness and vibrancy in Featherston, but it's really brought that community together. And that's the thing that gives us the biggest thrill. And that's something that, that Featherston and Wigton absolutely share, the, the sense of community and just the amazing people that work work very hard together to make everything happen. With Wigton, and I'm aware with Featherston, it's about, it's, we will come to the books and the bookshops and the festival, but it's it's about more than that as well, isn't it? It's about kind of the the local area, the, the, the regeneration ways to get people to engage with the with the kind of landscape as well. Mary, I'm aware that you've got a beautiful farm and a cookery school. Can you say a little bit more about that, about the, the other stuff? <laughs> the stuff I do when I um, have a bit of time left over from Featherston Town. Yes, so we uh, we live on 35 acres, um, three minutes from Featherston. We are very, very close, but we are also in a very rural area. So um, it's a beautiful property that we have. It's a very old house by New Zealand standards. It was first um, the house was built in 1868. There's about two acres of garden all around the old house. Uh, We have a citrus orchard, uh, lemons, and we have lots of vegetable gardens. And uh, my idea was to share the beautiful property with other people. I have a cooking background. I've been trained as a Cordon Bleu cook. So I wanted to teach people how to forage, get things from the garden, cook things extremely fresh and they come for the day they cook together they forage for an hour then sit down and eat and um, drink some local wine so it's a it's a very lovely experience particularly for people who live in the city kind of like the idea of being in the country but it means they can come to the country and have that experience without having to do all the hard work. Does that side of the of things if, if sort of feed into the the book festival program as well? I'm, I'm asking because um, Wigtown, as as I think you will know, having been there's lots of local produce and you know local lobster for the for the writers and so on. Is that is that something that kind of is is the case for you too? Yes. So um, this year. Um, you know, like everyone in the world, we've had a very unusual year and um, we had to cancel our major festival in May. But the great thing about COVID is that it's it's made us sort of turn around very, very quickly and come up with the another option for um, visitors. It, it's really important for us that people come from Wellington, that we attract them to the country to keep the rural communities going. So for the first time, actually, we've started to invite 
cookery book writers um, to come to Featherston Booktown. We had a very successful Words and Winter series in July where an internationally well-known cookbook writer, Peter Mathias, came. And we had not only her talking about her latest book, but um, we had six small artisan food producers have a stall to attract also the people that came to the book event. And we've got another international cookbook writer who must remain nameless at the moment because it's still confidential, but she's coming in November and we're going to have 25 artisan stallholders. So it's a really nice mixture of um, literature and writing, but also linked to the local producers. It's really, really important to share that uh, love around. I think when you've got the visitors, we want to give them lots of things to do. Could you give us a sense then of the, you know, it has been just such a really funny year, but what the festival um, has been like in the past and what might might happen next time when things hopefully will be back to normal a little bit? Yes, so um, the biggest program yet, uh, we were going to have 90 writers come um, with 60 events, so quite a few panel discussions about um, various different things, including the Me Too movement with our famous writer James K. Baxter, who um, blotted his copy book recently in uh, letters, uh, in a book that came out about his letters. So we're going to have a discussion about, you know, do writers' morals matter um, through to podcasts, the new way of enjoying literature. Yeah, so we're going to have um, lots of wonderful discussions That was cancelled. The program was literally at the printers. Fortunately, only the cover was printed so we could halt it when we um, had to cancel the festival. But we hope that we might be able to use some of the ideas we had in the 2020 program for our May 2021 festival. Oh, can can, I could leap in there? Mary is being very humble. I mean, you, you, we had organised a whole schools program the week before the festival which uh, was a big innovation for us and and was proving to be very, very popular. Uh, I don't know what's happening in, in the UK, but uh, poetry is, is hugely popular in New Zealand, which is wonderful to see. So what was it called, Suze, the, uh, the poetry event, which was a mixture of kind of disco and burlesque and poetry. Um, uh, that was show ponies. So show ponies were going to be in town, and uh, uh, advanced bookings for the show ponies because we we have this program called late night lit. So when um, the major events of the day are done and people can have their dinner, then a whole other series of late night lit events erupt through the town, which which are enormously popular. So the show ponies were a sold out event. And then that ever popular afternoon tea on the Sunday. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. So we have a um, Mother's Day afternoon tea because our festival falls over the Mother's Day weekend. It's usually filled with uh, women, mothers and daughters and sisters and aunts. And it's about 120 women come and we get some stellar female writers to come and talk to us and we have a traditional afternoon tea run by volunteers so beautiful home baking and bubbles and all sorts of wonderful experiences for women to have and listening to key New Zealand 
female writers. So this year we had Nikki Pellegrino, we had Peter Mathias, Rose Liu, who's written a beautiful book about um, living in New Zealand and around islands. The major point, and I think it's from what I know about Wigton, is and why the writers and presenters and, you know, we get... I mean, we, we, we're, we're early days for us. We're getting about 6,000 people through the three-day festival, but they love the genuine groundedness and, and warm hospitality of a, a rural community. And the events have this flavor where everybody is welcome. Um, there's no pretentiousness. We offer extraordinary literary and creative experiences and experiences with the artifact of the book. Uh, all you need to do is come along and enjoy the world of the book. You know, I have to say that when we moved to Featherston, it, it was not a town in good shape um, 20 or so years ago. It, it was a poor town. Um, it had once been very wealthy, but it had fallen on hard times, a bit like Clunes in Victoria, the book town in Australia. And they've become great friends of Featherston Booktown. A contingent comes over every year from Clunes to Featherston Booktown. And, and we, we also visit um, Clunes Booktown. But this notion of culture of the arts, of literature, the artifact of the book, turning around uh, a community. Um, and we're not just talking about prosperity, but we're talking about its uh, notion of self-respect and self-confidence and, and self-belief. A very simple concept like Booktown actually revived a community's belief in itself. And um, I think prosperity, which is starting to happen, which is a wonderful thing, in the town is a consequence of of that lovely and tangible thing called self-belief and self-confidence. Could you say, Peter, just a little bit more about um, the bookshops there? I think there are seven bookshops. There are seven bookshops. We, yes, we went to the opening of the seventh on Friday evening and what a wonderful community celebration that was. Um, it was jam-packed with uh, supporters and everybody celebrating the fact that Featherston, this small town that five years ago nobody wanted to know anything about and had one bookshop, has now got seven. And um, it's also a testament, I think, to um, uh, the belief in the impossible because we sat down in 2015 and I remember leading a strategic session, you know, and we, we listed our greatest imaginable challenge being, you know, Featherston is world famous as a prosperous and innovative destination for lovers of books and literature, six bookshops, a haven for writers, and has an education center focused on books. And we thought we'd never achieve that within, you know, 10 years, let, you know, let, let alone, you know, 20 years. And we've got seven bookshops and writers are coming to Featherston, making their homes there, as are many other creative people. So it, it is remarkable that you, you can have a dream and then you put a plan around it and you have wonderful people who buy into that dream and do the hard work and make it happen. And I think that's also the Wigtown story. I would say from our visit there, remarkable people, a belief in the future and what can be. And my goodness, you've made it happen. And we're some years behind you. But um, we look at Wigtown, we look at Clunes and say, you know, they, they are beacons for us. They are pieces of inspiration for us. And one of the things that people ask me is, you know, the International Organization of Book Towns, what is that? I mean, I, I just think it's a, it's a network of friends and lovers of books, but also it's a network of inspiration and ideas and generosity. How remarkable is that? And we're very pleased to be 
part of this lovely network of book towns doing remarkable things around the world and in their own communities in a very real and genuine way. Here, here, Peter. That's that's wonderful. Sp- speaking of lovers of books, my my probably my last little question to to both of you is: if you were to recommend to the to the listeners, both who, who will be in Wigtown but but elsewhere as well, just one book by a writer, maybe local to you or who's taken part in the festival that that people might read, which book might that be? Mary, I'll come to you first. Uh, well, my favourite book this year has been um, a book, a first book written by Becky Manawatu. And it's called Our Way, um, and it's a story about a young Maori boy written as if he was talking. And it's poetic, it's hard-hitting, but it's it's just a stunning book. It's won lots and lots of prizes um, so far this year, and very exciting that it's Becky's first time book. Wonderful, thank you. And Peter, what about you? I the book I give away all of the time is um, Carl Schuker's A Mistake. He's a Wellington writer, and it's the story of a, an operation on a patient in a hospital that goes badly wrong. Um, it's an exploration of of institutional blame and also personal guilt and trauma associated with that, and a, a, rem, a remarkable heroine who's the experienced surgeon where this operation's gone wrong and how she deals with it both personally and and within an institution and Carl is a is a remarkable writer and uh, I'd recommend it very very highly one of the things that the international organization of booktown networks has been uh, offers a real opportunity for us is that we have a, a goal to connect New Zealand writers internationally so we're delighted to be able to recommend two wonderful New Zealand writers Well, we're delighted to have included those recommendations and we hope that you do track them down. Thank you so much to the wonderful Peter and Mary for taking the time to chat to us for this episode. Wigtown so enjoyed welcoming them to the festival last year and we're really looking forward to visiting them in Featherston at some point in the future. Finally, we talked to Liam McIlvaney, a professor of Scottish studies at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Liam is also an acclaimed crime novelist. His novel, The Quaker, was the winner of the McIlvaney Prize at Scotland's crime festival Bloody Scotland in 2018, and he's currently working on a sequel. Liam, how are you? Not too bad, Peggy. Thanks very much for having me. So, Liam, we're, we're really this is a, a sort of book town to book town episode, and we're coming to you because you're our, you're our uh, local correspondent over there in New Zealand. Tell us where you are in the world. Right. Well, I'm in uh, Linwood Avenue, with a good Scottish name, in, in the district of Maori Hill in the city of Dunedin in the South Island of New Zealand. So a good 12,000 miles away. I just want to ask you a little bit about, I know that you have been to the Featherston Book Festival. And we've had a chat with Mary and Peter, who are sort of instrumental with that book town being set up. What's Featherston like and what was your experience like there? I was there. I've just been once. And it was fantastic. I had a great time. It's just um, a quite a kind of standard sort of one street New Zealand town. But it's developed, you know, it's got all these bookshops and, and all these events happening. The thing that slightly nonplussed me was that, you know, you fly from the South Island to Wellington and then they had hired a car for me to get to Featherston. But the thing that they neglected to tell me was that, you know, the final 15 kilometres of the drive might be quite interesting because you have to go over the Remutaka Pass, which is the scariest. I felt like Shoshone in Goldfinger, you know, sort of <laughs> this kind of hilltop 
road. So I was a kind of a puddle of sweat by the time I arrived in, in Featherston. But of course, that's nothing to do. They didn't even think it was significant enough to actually see. You know, it might be quite a hairy drive. But yeah, the, the, the festival was, was great. It's obviously really energised the uh, the town. It sounds absolutely lovely. I mean, just the, the bookshops and the community, they're very like Wigtown, in fact, just in terms of its sort of community spirit and the mixture of lovely landscape all around it and, and so on. Maybe, you know, the, the road right enough to it does sound like a bit of an adventure. But <laughs> And Liam, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your role as Professor of Scottish Literature, the University of Otago, where you run a Tartan Noir course. How does Scottish Literature travel? How does it land? Well, yeah, I'm actually in the middle of teaching my Tartan Noir paper just now, uh, which is going going pretty well. We've got 45 students beavering away, reading everything from Robert Louis Stevenson and Conan Doyle through to Val McDermott and Denise Miner and, and Ian Rankin and Abir Mukherjee and so on. Um, we've also got Claire Curran, who's the MP for Dunedin South, who's actually demitting office at the upcoming election she's actually in the class too and I think she's actually planning to write a crime novel based on the nefarious goings-on in the New Zealand parliament so we can uh, we can look forward to that but no it's it's been quite salutary for me to I mean I spent you know the first 11 years of my career in Aberdeen teaching Scottish literature to students who who did Scottish literature because that was just what you did Uh, and then you move to the other side of the world and you have to actually justify why people should study Scottish literature. So I've found it, it works quite well if you combine the national dimension with with a genetic, with a, something to do with genre. So I teach a course on Scottish and Irish Gothic fiction, which goes down well. And I also teach this course on Scottish crime fiction. In some ways, it's actually a Scottish literature survey course, sort of masquerading as a crime fiction course. We've got Muriel Sparks, The Driver's Seat, John Buchan on there. So it's actually surprising how many canonical Scottish novelists that you would be teaching anyway on a survey course you can kind of shoehorn into a crime fiction course. What do you, what do you think it is about, about Scotland and it's you know we've seen this enormous boom in in Tartan Noir you know Bloody Scotland the festival which I know you've been to and won an award with your own name on it. At. What is it about the the rise and rise of Scottish crime do you think? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, Peggy. I mean, there are various possibilities. I think one thing that uh, teaching this course has reminded me of is, is just what a rich heritage of crime fiction we have in Scotland. I mean, I even going back to things like Walter Scott's The Two Drovers is to me a kind of early piece of crime fiction. Um, so I think you see that, you know, if you look at someone like Ian Rankin, you know, his first couple of novels were essentially rewritings of Jekyll and Hyde, and that sort of Stevenson influence has remained very strong throughout Rankin's entire output. I think we've got a great heritage of dark, gothic crime fiction to draw on. It's also, I think, quite useful to have that sort of strong Calvinist dimension to to Scottish history, that sense of the deep, irredeemable sinfulness of humanity, kind of cloaked in a veneer of respectability. That's a great kind of combination for, for, you know, crime writers love to kind of expose the hidden underbelly under that sort of veneer of, of respectability. And I think also these things just gather a sense of momentum. You know, once you've got, you know, two or three or four Scottish crime writers who are having some international success and recognition and so on, that generates its own kind of momentum and it becomes a plausible thing for uh, emerging writers to think, well, I'll, I'll have a go at a crime novel. I love that, that sort of the, the veneer of respectability you just mentioned. It always reminds me of lifting a rock and there's loads of kind of 
earwigs and sort of slaters underneath. Yes. You know? But you mentioned Calvinism, and I'm glad you did because it's it's the 250th anniversary of the birth of the one and only James Hogg. I wonder, Liam, why do you think his influence loiters about so so keenly still? 250 years on, like what what what's, what is it about him and his work? You don't want to lose sight of the sort of broad expanse of Hogg's oeuvre, but it does kind of come back to the Confessions, doesn't it? The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner is just one of these books that once you've read it, it never leaves you. And it's always there or thereabouts in these polls of, you know, the best, 100 best Scottish novels. Of, and it's it feels such a contemporary book, both in terms of its understanding of psychology and, you know, the way it gives insight into the, the mind of a serial killer. A very sophisticated structure the way it gives different perspectives on the the same events and it's got a particular resonance uh, here in in Dunedin. I teach the book on my gothic literature course and it's always quite gratifying to say to the students and if you want to see James Hogg's own library you can cross the road to our special collections building uh, which in fact houses Hogg's library and that's because Hogg's descendants, the Gilkissons, migrated to New Zealand. A few years ago, I was sitting in my office in our Centre for Irish and Scottish Studies, and someone knocked on the door, and this chap came in and sat down. I, I was, I don't think I was at that moment, but I was in the throes within the next couple of weeks of preparing a lecture on Hogg, and this guy sat down and introduced himself as a descendant of James Hogg. He said that he was about to go off to Scotland to recreate some of James Hogg's travels through Scotland, and he was planning to write a book that Edinburgh University Press were, were going to publish. So, of course, that, in fact, duly happened. Mr Gilkison wrote his uh, his book, Travelling in, in uh, His Forebear's Footsteps. So it's great when those kind of serendipities happen, that you're 12,000 miles away, but Scottish literature seems very close. And in fact, that's quite a common experience for me because, as you as you may know, Peggy, the city of Dunedin and the, the settlement of Otago was co-founded by the Reverend Thomas Burns, Robert Burns's nephew. So, so when you're teaching Burns, uh, you've got that. You know, there's a big statue of Robert Burns in the the octagon, the main of town plaza in Dunedin. Our uh, writer in residence fellowship at the university is the Robert Burns Fellowship. Um, there's a Robert Burns pub. You know, Robert Burns sort of pervades the the whole city. That Burns fellow, he gets about, doesn't he? <laughs> he certainly yeah. does. Yeah. Um, Liam, I want to, as well as teaching, obviously. I mean, you've you've written your own your own books. Uh, I wanted to ask you just about the most recent one, The Quaker, and just if you could just sort of set the scene for us. I know, I believe you're working on a sequel, so maybe you could just sort of say a wee bit more about The Quaker and what's coming up next. Yeah, certainly. Well, The Quaker was, uh, I suppose, a historical thriller and police procedural set in Glasgow in 1969 and loosely based on the Bible John murders, which preoccupied. I mean, I was born in 1969, but I, I remember as a boy um, how those images, you know, the artist's impression of Bible John and the identical photograph would keep recurring in the newspapers. And the fact that the case was unsolved just gave it that sort of ongoing free song. So the, as I say, the book is based on a, a sort of lightly fictionalised version of the Bible John murders. Currently, well, I say completing, I've written 102,000 words of the sequel, which I was supposed to submit a few months ago at 90,000 words. So I'm kind of hoping I can bring it home without, uh, <laughs> you know, expanding too far uh, beyond my the, the current state of play. Uh, so that should hopefully, I should finish that before 
too long and hopefully that will be out next year. That's exciting. What do you think the, the, the idea of sort of being distant from Scotland makes you more able or less able to write about it as a place? Yeah, I've kind of pondered this, as you might imagine. I've no idea. I mean, in some ways, you know, distance gives you a kind of sharpened perspective on some things and you can you can see certain aspects of your homeland that you might perhaps not see so vividly if you were, if you were there. On the other hand, it's always quite handy to be on the spot just to kind of have a recce of your locations that you're going to use in in the novel. So, I mean, Google Maps can only take you so far. It's it's quite nice to actually get a sense of the texture and the smells and just the physical presence of the locations that you're discussing. I don't know. I'm quite ambivalent. I like to take solace from the example of David Peace, the great Yorkshire novelist who wrote those very harrowing, terrific quartet of novels about the the Yorkshire Ripper, the Red Riding Quartet. And he wrote those from Japan. He lives in Tokyo. And a few years ago, he he went back with his Japanese wife and kids to Osset in in Yorkshire. And he lasted two years because he found he couldn't actually write a word about Yorkshire when he was in (laughs) Yorkshire. Uh, So I kind of cling to that as an example of someone who's been, been able to write about a place from a considerable distance. Can I ask you, Lee, a bit more about the historical angle and how that plays? I mean, is that a a useful distancer, I suppose? I mean, I love historical crime fiction myself. I love reading it. But um, but yeah, what what does it mean to you? Well, I think that was partly just a kind of strategic decision, Peggy, that, you know, the first two novels that I wrote were contemporary, fairly topical political thrillers. And you do start to to realise once you've been out of the country for a decade or so, you know, it's, it's becoming increasingly implausible for you to keep writing those kinds of, of books. So that was one of the attractions of writing a historical novel, that in some sense we're all equally distant from Glasgow in, in 1969. There was going to have to be some sort of imaginative leap in any case to write about that time and place. I suppose the other thing with Glasgow was that you've got that historical kind of turning point. I mean, in the late 80s and 1990 with the Garden Festival in the City of Culture and the the whole reinvention of Glasgow. I was just sort of finishing up at Glasgow University as an undergraduate in 1990. I was very conscious of that as a kind of cusp. So I suppose you find a lot of uh, West of Scotland crime writers, so people like Alan Parks, uh, Denise Minor, writing books about Glasgow in that period before the transformation. And there is, I think there's a real attraction for crime writers to go back to that kind of old sort of noirish Glasgow before all the all the sandblasting and stone cleaning and the sort of tidying up of the city's image. And in a way that's the sense, I think it's almost the equivalent to, if you think of some like Ian Rankin in, in Edinburgh, the great advantage that an Edinburgh writer has is is with that image of Edinburgh as a kind of genteel, anglicised city, and you can then uncover, you know, the gritty underbelly. The problem with Glasgow is that Glasgow, you know, the underbelly is, is pretty visible. So I suppose the kind of equivalent thing for Glasgow writers tends to be that distinction between, you know, the kind of cleaned up modern city and then taking us back into the the darkness of that old bad Glasgow of the 70s and 80s. Mm. I love Denise's book, The Long Drop. It's so grimy. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm teaching that. I've just finished The Last Dead, her new one, which is absolutely superb. Oh, and I've got the great pleasure of teaching The Long Drop uh, in a couple of weeks' time to my crime fiction class here in Dunedin. Oh, wonderful. I just want to ask you, Liam, a little bit um, about the crime fiction scene community there in New Zealand. I mean, could you say a wee bit just about what that's like? Yeah, well, it, it's really been developing 
quite significantly in, in recent years. I mean, I think Australia too, there's lots of fantastic crime fiction being written in Australia and New Zealand. I mean, for my money, Peter Temple, the great Australian crime writer, I mean, I think he was the pound for pound the best crime writer on the planet. He, he unfortunately died last year. You've also got in, in New Zealand, I mean, in, here in Dunedin, in fact, we've got a little Dunedin Detection Club, which meets in, in the Albar in the Scottish pub uh, on the first Monday of every month. So we've got a little group, people like uh, Vanda Simon, who writes police procedurals set in Dunedin and who's been enjoying some fantastic success uh, in the UK. Her books, her Dunedin books have been reissued by Orenda Publishing and Vanda was shortlisted for one of the Dagger Awards, I think the debut Dagger Award last year. So it's been fantastic to see a crime writer like Vanda, who's got some recognition in New Zealand, getting some great recognition overseas. Then you've got people like Paul Cleave, who perhaps doesn't get great recognition in, in New Zealand, but that doesn't really bother him because he gets enormous recognition in Europe. I mean, he sell, I think he sold 500,000 copies in Germany and you know, he's huge in, in France and so on. There's, there's quite a strong situation with New Zealand crime fiction. It's also been helped by a fantastic guy called Craig Sisterson, who is just a sort of crime fiction enthusiast who set up the Niall Marsh Awards, the New Zealand Crime Fiction Awards, named, of course, after one of the four queens of crime, Niall Marsh, who was a, a New Zealander. And that's really raised the profile of the genre in New Zealand and, I think, further, further afield. And Craig is now based in, in London. And so he... he chairs quite a lot of, you know, Antipodean sessions at the big UK crime fiction festivals. So I, I think Craig's influence has been quite significant in just boosting the profile of the genre here in New Zealand. Just finally then, um, might we expect to see any sort of New Zealand situated crime from you yourself, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've actually started a New Zealand, a Dunedin set thriller so I'll, I'll, I've got another couple of books that I want to finish before I get back to that. But I think I will do that at, at some stage. It's one of these slightly awkward things that, although I've lived here for, you know, 11 years or whatever it is now, I'm still quite conscious that I don't have that native's understanding of the place and, and how it works. But it's certainly something that I, I think I'll tackle at some point. Can't wait to read those novels when they come out. Many, many thanks to Liam McIlvany for chatting to us for this podcast. And if what Liam was saying about the James Hogg Library piques your interest, then don't forget to listen again to our Whole Hog episode with authors James Robertson, Graham McRae Burnett and academic Valentina Bold. That's from day two of the festival. Well, that's it for another episode. We hope that you've enjoyed our little visit to New Zealand. Very special thanks to all of our guests for this episode. As you will imagine, it was no small feat to wrangle diaries and timeframes to make sure that we could all talk at a reasonably social hour. Thank you to Mary and Peter Biggs. Thank you to Selena, to Satala Marsh, and of course, Liam McIlvany. And also a huge thank you to unsung hero Anne Brown, who has been a silent but vital part in arranging not just this episode, but many of the episodes that we've been producing for you for the festival this year. So thank you, Anne. And thank you, of course, to you for listening. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. We'll be with you again tomorrow, focusing on one of Ireland's greatest writers, Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde. Oscar Wilde to you and me. But until then, take care. Bye-bye for now.